So today we're going to look, and if you would, open up your Bibles, your Bible apps, or your hardcore memory to Psalm 51. And we're going to talk about Psalm 51. Last week we talked, uh, Mike taught about Nathan's rebuke of David, and, uh, and this week we're going to we're going to roll over into and what happens next, I guess, with David, and uh, and we're going to make some points after uh, after we read the scripture, um, some points about the scripture. Those being, and I have three of them. Point one, that God's intention is to show us, and not just David's, because it's not just for him, amen, to show us our need and the depth of our need, that forgiveness isn't merely a pardon, but it's a replacement for the jeopardy and distress and the ailment of hurt that sin brings on us. And mercy is, mercy is that remedy. Point two is to show us a close-up, detailed representation of the consequences of sin and how, at least in every detail, he is available, God is available and able. That in the, in the sin itself, there, there's less reproach by God, I think, and more approach. And thirdly, that even a failure of a chosen one, as David was chosen, cannot derail the original plan by God to bring about salvation. So let's go ahead and read this. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and praise, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, uh, Heavenly Father, precious Holy Spirit, thank you for just being escorted into your presence this morning in song. Thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that you made the way for us to, to be here together uh, individually and collectively. Thank you for this opportunity to submit to you and your will for myself, my family. Thank you for all the people that have uh, walked with me and asked me to do things um, according to your goodwill. Thank you for for Mike and all the work that he puts in and the example that he is. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless him today and this week and all of us, Lord, we need your blessing this week. I pray for those that are sick and not feeling well, hurting in any fashion, Lord, that you would be with them for Kristen and my own wife and daughter and all of us here. We need your hand upon our health. And Lord, I ask that you would bless this time, bless, bless this teaching and these words and everything I've got written down here on this paper, Lord, I commit it to you, I submit it to you, and I ask uh, for your Holy Spirit to fill me, to fill the people here, to hearing, Lord, that you would speak through me and that you would help them to listen through you and hear you um, because it's by your power. It's not by my chosen thoughts or words. It's by your power. It's by your word. And you bring about uh, that which you desire in us, especially so when we're willing to let you. So give us that. And uh, I pray these things in your Wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. So, point one, God's intention is to show us, and not just David, uh, the depth of our need in this scripture. That forgiveness is more than just a pardon. Forgiveness is more than just a, just a passing off of... Um, Concessions, you did this, I did that, or even um, that it's 
that it's something that's required in our hearts, that all of the deep things within us have been directly impacted uh, by one bad choice or wrong choice or another. Uh, to the depth of our being, we're affected. It's not a surface um, thing, but, it's a, but it is an inner surface and an inner man um, devastation that has occurred and uh, David is in the midst of this, and I think that all of us, whether we've blown it as bad as David or not, um, should be able to get something out of this, out of this process that David went through uh, and that God is using to, to minister to his people with. Um, I want to say that the psalm itself is um, beautiful in, in its own way, um, even despite the subject matter, by the sheer fact that when you read it, or you heard me read it out loud, or when you read it before, maybe you've noticed something about the way the psalm plays out. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it very much goes tit for tat, kind of goes this back and forth, I, you, I, you, I, you. And there's a cadence to this. And to have something in there like that is not, I mean, you can hear me talking right now. I'm kind of picking up and putting pieces together and thinking and processing. And then I've got stuff that I've written and I've got stuff that I've thought. And it, it's really not all that poetic. But this scripture here is deliberate that David, when he wrote this, was simultaneously in a wasted state because of the consequences, because of the rebuke and the, the heaviness that, that Nathan um, left at his doorstep. And he's expressing I'm going to say creatively. He's expressing from his gift. David was a talented individual, a musician, and obviously a writer. He structured this, this expression, and that came from a creative, expressive place within him. And so to have those, those two activities within himself move forward together to draw out these, these scriptures, I think is beautiful. I think it's, a, it's not mentioned, but I think it's there for you to realize that even, even in the worst of whatever it is you are in or been through, God has given perhaps a talent or a gift by which you, you can, it's still permittable to engage with God uh, through I think it's just neat. Anyways, um, the process had to be exhausting. And I think David's putting everything into this and he's using his talents as part of that effort. And just to back up my point that it's uh, a 
structured, created thing. I bothered to count the cadence and the structure. I bothered to count the number of times David references himself and the number of times God is referenced by David. And it's, you can go and do it. You can double check my math, but it's tit for tat 30, 30 times David reps himself in the situation and 30 times David reps God in the situation. And it's somewhere near 27. I could have miscounted again, but it is neck and neck, tit for tat. By way of descriptor, by way of verb, David describes himself 27 different times and by verbs describes God 27 times. And it is, it is this intentional, structured piece that David has drawn out of himself to write and God has deemed fit. It's approved in God's eyes. Otherwise, he, I'm pretty sure God wouldn't let it in the scripture, right? It's inspired. God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God has included this in the middle of his psalms. And uh, I think that's just really important to know that there's a special relationship we can have with God in our giftings and, and whatnot. But yeah, 30 references to David, 30 references to God, a balance back and forth. It's intentional structure that comes from a creative source. But back to my original point, how does this scripture show the depth of need? Well, David, first off, in calling out the 27 or so attributes and aspects of God, starts off with, have mercy on me, O God. Mercy is the first thing David makes his request, his plea to. And you don't ask for mercy when you step on somebody's toe. You don't ask for mercy when you take somebody's lane in traffic. You ask for mercy when, when you are, you're at their mercy, when your circumstances have hijacked your plans and your efforts and your ability to provide whatever it is, the next thing that you're pursuing. You, you are requesting mercy when, when you are powerless when something has more power over you in a moment and you're subject to the impending decision from that power. I asked for mercy several times. Back when I used to drink, I used to want to not drink. I had a hard time not drinking and I wanted to quit. I didn't, I didn't approach mercy until until I didn't have any choices in the matter anymore. I honestly called out for, for mercy when I was at the point of my most powerlessness. I was completely wasted, hopeless, destined for destruction, literal destruction, confronted with my next step is destruction if I, if I keep this up. And all of my circumstances were out of my control. I was in jail. I was looking at a year in prison, and they don't let you take prosthetics into prison. They don't let you take prosthetics into prison. 
You know, like this thing on my arm? Yeah. It can be used as a tool or a weapon. Uh, so I needed mercy. I needed mercy so bad. And it really, mercy is, is, is you've got nothing and you're completely and entirely dependent upon the forces that be to determine what's next in your outcome. David calls out for mercy. And it's the number one aspect of God that David appeals to. And interestingly enough, mercy is right there at the top of the list in regards to how God has always tried to reveal himself and tried to show his creation who he is. It's, it's the direct attribute to his name, God, rich in mercy, slow to anger. God created the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. When God, at this point in his plan to restore humanity, humanity to himself, the thing he centralized was mercy. And I guess a challenge to you and to myself when I was thinking this over is when you think of God is one of the immediate thoughts that you think about him that he's merciful. God, mercy. God, merciful. God, merciful towards me. God, in your mercy, hear my prayer. And honestly, I don't. I think it's something I'm going to actively monitor in my prayer and my attitudes and my meditations on, on who God is. Um, and I think a lot of us relate to God um, because of our fathers or our dads. Uh, they're representations of, of an authority. Um, that's a psychological rabbit trail. Um, but I can tell you that my dad was, was quick to anger. Um, he wasn't merciless, but he wasn't, he wasn't merciful either. He, he knew how to, he knew how to punish me. And I think for a while, honestly, I thought of God in the same light, that God, I bet you sure know how to punish me. And why would I approach God and ask him for anything if the first thing I expected from God was punishment? But that's not who God wants me to know him. He doesn't want any of us to know him that way. He wants to be known by his mercy. And that's what's required by David, and that's what can be accessed or appealed to, genuinely appealed to, especially in, in deep need. Lord, have mercy on us. And that we can go to the mercy seat, and that's the very thing we should actually expect because it's a seat. It means you sit down, and it's called the mercy seat. It's not called the punishment seat, not the hot seat. It's the mercy seat. 
So open up, open up wide and, and receive. Of the other things that David, the other things, the other attributes and characteristics of God that David appeals to in this psalm, they are, I listed them. His steadfastness, his having abundance. I'm just gonna write, I'm just gonna say these out. I, I just call them names because they're listed there and they identify who God is to David in this. Mercy, steadfast, having abundance, blotter, washer, cleanser, justifier, blameless, judge, delighter, teacher, purger, authority of hearing, healer, bone breaker, hider, creator, renewer, caster, I know that's not the right word, he does say, cast me not from your presence. It's an authority term. Don't send me out. God is taker. He gives and he takes. Restorer, upholder, upholder, deliverer, delighter, pleased one, despiser, or better yet, evaluator, good, and builder. All of those stem from mercy because without God's mercy, we can't access all those other things. Those are all very generous. That is a generous portion of God that he's giving out here. And none of it is, does David have a leg to stand on to request? It's all a byproduct of God's mercy. God doesn't owe David anything. He doesn't owe us any of these things. But because of his mercy, he provides access. David perceives that all of these things in God, he can appeal to them according to steadfast love, your abundant mercy. which speaks not only to the depth of need from David, but it speaks again to God in this back and forth. Of his attributes and actually going back here, what David needs and what we need not just to be able to perceive that God is merciful, but to trust that he'll be consistent with us. Thus, the steadfast mercy. David knows that there's a mercy there, but it's not a hit and miss mercy. It's a consistent mercy. It's consistent with God's character. It isn't just a flash and dash. It isn't just a a show and go, it's a steadfast characteristic of God and David needs it. We all need it. It's like, it's one thing to get up the gumption to ask God to be merciful because we know we don't deserve it 
And then, then it's another thing to expect that he'll grant it and he'll consistently, consistently be that way, that he won't flip out on us halfway through. Steadfast mercy. I know sometimes I can make up my mind to be merciful, maybe towards my kid, uh, maybe she's being a little bit of a brat or disrespectful, a little, a little spoiled or something. Well, I'll let her, let her go easy with this one. I'll let her have this for a little bit. But then halfway through our exchange or halfway through the hour or the time at the dinner table where she just continues to be in a funk, mercy fades out. And then I, I harden. I graduate in, in my frustration. But not God. It's there, a layer to his character, unmoving, unchanging. Another example of the depth to which David needs God engaging with him in this is if you look at the Oh, the rigor involved in, in the resolution, the chore and the labor and the sensitive care that David is requesting. When you look at his request to cleanse, purge, blot. Anybody do any blotting lately? It might help you understand what David's actually asking for here. Has anybody, show of hands, blotted before? One, two. This one's been blotted a couple of times. I like it, it's comfortable. I'm talking about this shirt. And uh, I have white t-shirts that I wear in the summertime because they're cool in the sun. I run warm, I think, anyways, and then when the sun beats down and I'm wearing a dark color and I got this light skin, oh, man, heat compounds and get good and cranky and uncomfortable. So I like to wear a white T-shirt. I like to wear lighter colored clothing. But the problem with that is coffee, mustard, blood, Mud, dirt, grime, and uh, more often than not, if I'm wearing that, I'm out of the house. I don't wear white T-shirts around my house just for the sake of wearing them. I wear them when I'm outside, away from home, or out with people, and you go and get something on you, day's ruined, can't talk to you. It's almost as bad as having a booger that nobody tells you about. Something on your face. No, you got this mustard stain, you got some mud, you got something on your shirt. So you gotta go clean it. You gotta clean it. And blotting and purging 
and cleansing is a chore. You have to, you have to, you can't just scrub it and spread it around. You have to be mindful. You have to be intentional. You have to, you have to be involved with what you're doing. You can't overwhelm it with too much water because it'll just you kind of you got to surround it with a little bit of water, put a perimeter around the stain, so that way in case it does run on you, kind of hits that, and you, and, you, and you nurse the stain from the outside in. And every time you, every time you hit it with either another moist, uh, ooh, another damp towel, or another uh, uh, or paper towel that's wet, and you dab, 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 and you watch it, you watch the stain go into that, and you pick up, and you're, you're transferring. You're picking the stain up and putting it somewhere else. You're pulling it out. And that's what David is asking for here. This isn't just a, hey, man, I screwed up. Can we forget about this? No. He's messed up. And his, his shiny, bright, clean, clean thing that he had going on for a long time is... It's unrecognizable. And he, and, but he's confronted, Nathan's confronted him and said, look at you, look at what you've done. To cleanse and to purge, those are not easy activities. Purge was something that they did to get ready for events where they had to purge their house of any foreign um, yeast or strain of dirt. It means getting in there and getting everything out. He's, I mean, just imagine like the micro particle that if left will might as well be 100% at that point, even if it's just one part per million. It might as well be 100% because it's, it's foreign and it doesn't belong in that space. And, and David realizes that this, this sin has gotten, gotten in there to the degree that it, it needs the energy to well, the emphasis behind the energy needs to be to, to just eviscerate it. Purge is a very active term. I have to purge at work. I have to purge my hoses because I work on refrigeration. And if you get one small amount, or you get too many, we, we won't ever get 100%. But if you get too many parts per million of moisture inside of a refrigerant system, inside of a pressurized copper pipe network, it mixes with the refrigerant and the oil and it creates an acid. And then the acid moves around the moving parts of the machinery. And acid and machinery, moving parts, don't go together. It's the exact opposite of what you want to have happen. You want lubrication, right? Moving parts, things work well together. And and every step of the way, we have to make sure that from the, the fresh pressurized tank of gas all the way into the, the system, that there's no leaks anywhere. And we have to purge 
from that through our hoses. So that eliminates the possibility that there's something over here. We've purged it. We've moved it out to the end of this hose. And then we purge the system. We may open the other end of the system up. And then we run the gas through our purged hose, through the purge system. And it out the other end of the system. And then you seal it off. And it just it sweeps through. Purging is a, a sweeping through. This thing needs to be grabbed, caught, and swept away. Not a light task. And David's asking for this on the inner man, not just on his outside circumstances. And poetically enough, it doesn't have to just be purging. It gets emotional. He engages with... um, with his heart about this. And he recognizes that, that even then, maybe purging isn't enough, maybe cleansing isn't quite enough. I look at uh, the detailed representation of the effect and consequence of his sin and the level of detail God is aware and capable of entering into. In verses five and six, I'll read those again. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David, by admission here, says, now first he recognizes his sins are, are ever before him, but then he's like, you know what? Behold. It's like it's dawning on him, like he's realizing it. Behold. I was sinful. I was brought forth in this. It stuck to me. It's in me. It's like he's having this realization that he never really was pure or free from it. It's like he recollects and remembers the truth that he's been told, that God's been trying to tell people, they're all, all of us throughout history, Adam and Eve sinned, and every man, woman, child, henceforth, you got it. I don't know if you've ever had that revelation. If, you, if you've come to terms with that, it, it's, a, it's a tough one to, to wrestle with and engage. It's good to confess your sins and it's good to receive what God has for us in, in dealing with those sins. But on the subject itself that it's part of us and we can't shake it, um, it's tough to deal with, but it, it creates a dependency on God, which is, um, which is brilliant and, and necessary and good. Um, I remember myself specifically kind of having the same realization as David did. I had gotten into an argument with my wife, Tara, 
And we were sitting on the couch, and I had told her I was sorry, and I thought everything was thrust out into the open, and we were all good. And uh, I was sitting there on the couch, and I, I spent some time with the Lord. Lord, show me, is there anything else? Am I missing anything? And uh, I'm a very visual, imaginative person. Uh, God, God can speak to me really well through visual images, much better than words. And I was, I was, I was looking, and I, and I could see this picture of like my linoleum floor or a white linoleum floor, floor just clean, except for this one dang spot like in the corner that was just black. It's like in a crevice. Like a, it's like a, like a close-up of a microscope of somebody's tooth, and there's a cavity, and there's like, oh man, beautiful white teeth, and mine are not beautifully white. But people who have the beautiful white smile, I bet you get a microscope in there, and there's probably a little, a little something, something in there. It's just that's what sin is. It's just it's ingrained, and it's in the deepest recesses, and we can't get rid of it unless or until God creates that new heart. And if it's brand new, that's the thing David wants here. If it's brand new, it won't have that. But yeah, man, it's frustrating. You, you get this futility. But that futility should be Interpreted to dependence upon God. I think it's interesting how David has those behold moments there in verse 5 and 6. Because nowhere else in the rest of the scripture or in the rest of this section does he say behold. When it occurs, it's why would you say behold if you didn't? realize something, why would you say, you know, behold a coffee cup, behold a table that I sit at, behold I'm breathing air. No, it's a, it's an epiphany or it's a, it's a dawning moment in his mind. He's like, behold, I've been sinful at birth. And then it's almost as if he's listening and talking at the same time because he says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He realizes afresh God's preference in, in dialogue the secret heart. And he starts to zero in on more. He zeroes in closer to what his, his real need is. And as we'll see coming up, he actually nails it. The secret heart.
David realizes that God has to be his physician, his physician heal these broken bones, how he feels in his body. He realizes that God needs to be the source of inspiration. To hear joy, he asks. To hear joy and gladness. To be a source of rejoicing. To restore the joy of his salvation. His source of willingness. And all these ways that God has able to be with us in the middle of our sin and the things that happen from it. David has lost his sense of physical well-being because of this. His ears are dull. They probably only hear his own moaning and groaning and complaining and grief. And he can't draw out of himself that which he had exercised for so many years prior to his rejoicing, his musicianship, his, his singing, his singing and his dancing. Can't sing, don't feel like dancing. Body hurts. Don't have it inside of me to just belt out a tune here. And he wants God back in those places with him. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me. The one that has permission or gives permission for you to tune your ears, the ears of your heart, to things that bring about joy and gladness come from God. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let them, permit them to hide your face, blot out my iniquities, create in me He needs God's creative power. He can't just numb it away. He can't not feel it. He can't dodge it. He's admitted that it's been in him since he was born. He needs God's creative power, the source of something new. Creating me a clean heart, O oh God. There in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Needs him to restore. Means that there was something there once that's not there again, and he needs God to restore it. It came from God to begin with. It's just so involved and so detailed, and it just goes around again and again and again, 30 times, 27 times, back and forth.
David recognizes that God himself is the source of his willingness to, pers- to persevere, to proceed. He says, he calls him, let me find it. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Uphold me with a willing spirit. You can make a decision to want to will and to do something. But as far as seeing that through, I mean, how much can you iron fist it? And then by the time you're done iron fisting it, whatever it is you've determined to do, how true to its original meaning and and intent does does it resemble? And he asks for God to uphold him, meaning God sustain me with a willing spirit He knows that he can't move forward in, in even addressing the things, trying to attain the things that he needs, addressing the, the fallout from all of this without God actually putting that wind in his sail, just a little little breeze or just a little uphold me. I mean, I, I get the visual of somebody coming behind you with both their arms underneath your armpits. Come on, we gotta go. You know, and David just feels like just, bruh, just wiped out on the floor. Nothing left. He needs to pick him up. Come on. He needs God to open his mouth to rejoice. God does not just come up to you and grab your lips and go, start talking, start singing, right? It happens from the inside. It has to be a welling up of God's spirit inside of him that David can't help himself. Sometimes I can't help myself when I start thinking about how good God is. I start, I start bubbling, I start bubble crying, kind of, what do they call that, ugly crying? Whatever, I ugly cry a little bit. It's just coming up. It's coming up. Can't just stuff it, keep it in there. I think it's a form of rejoicing. It's out of gratitude that I do it. Because God's been very merciful to me. David recognizes his need and asks God to open his mouth, bring back that force from within our hearts that causes me to rejoice. Open my mouth and I will sing your praises. Every detail. David, David gets these because behold, the secret heart, I think God is ministering to him. Teach me wisdom in the inmost places of the secret heart. He's gotten down. He's gotten down to business with God in the place within the place. And I think, I hope that most of us know what that is. That God knows what it is. I'll tell you that. He already knows. 
because he made it. And he's there. David somehow gets down into that space within his heart of hearts. Ah, God, I know you're in here. He's talking to him. He's threshing out all the ways that he needs him. And he gets even deeper. And I don't think it occurs to David. I think he's just so pressed in at this point. And he says in verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Meaning, if I thought you were going to like what I had to offer you, believe me, at this point, it's all yours. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. A burnt offering. A gesture. And he, and he pings it. He pings the heart of hearts. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You will not devalue. We heard that word, bizarre, from Mike last week when Nathan accuses David of despising God's word. You have devalued God's word. You have devalued what God has given you. You despised it. It's not disdain. It's devalue. You, you thought that stuff was cheap. And you set it aside for something you thought was more valuable. God does not do that with your heart. And if we look at it, I think we can understand why God wouldn't. That's the one thing God wants more than anything else. And it's the one thing David is relieved that God will accept because it's all that David has left that's worth putting before God. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Sacrifices, you could turn your nose up at those, God, and heck, I wouldn't blame you. Because who knows if the motivation behind the sacrifice is any good or not, except God. No, we're not even going to go through that. We're going to get right down to it. The heart, the secret heart, broken or whole, or wholly broken, all, all of it, every microfracture, every gnarly bruise, every foul compartment of secret sin in reserve, God wants it all. And he might not like the way it, it is. He might not appreciate the condition too much. He might convict you into making some sort of change. 
and it'd be for your own good, but he will not devalue it. It is, it is the thing of things. It, it is the object that is as valuable as his words, and he is the word, and he wants his word in your object. David nails it on the freaking head. He's blasted the target from 5,000 yards out. He doesn't even realize it. Just ping. Like a, I thought of this this morning, visual again. I thought of this, a good example, a representation. David was a harpist. Nathan's daughter is a harpist. Is that the word, harpist? Harp player? David hits a string that ain't never been dinged before in the middle of a familiar song or something. All of a sudden, his finger goes a little too far and goes ding. And it's this extra, it's this extra note. Bob Ross calls it a happy accident. Anybody watch Bob Ross? Creative individual. You don't make mistakes. You have happy accidents. You take the thing that wasn't intentionally supposed to be there. It's not like David intended to find out that God desires to know us in our broken spirit and contrite heart, but he found it. He happened upon it. And it rings. And David, I don't know. I don't think he realized that. I don't know. It just rings and fades. And David kind of zooms back out a little bit. And you get into verses 18 through 19. He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I scratched my head at that a little bit. What happened? What the sacrifice? And here we are back in the sacrificial system. Oh, this is what God wants. I think, I think David pinged it and God... Maybe God doesn't drill on it in that, drill down on it in that moment with David and say, bah, you know, behold, David, you got it. That's it. We can stop there. Spread that. Everybody get some of that right there. We're good. This is what I've been wanting this whole time. We can, we can get rid of the barbecue. You got it. Just get everybody to do that thing right there. I don't think David realized it when he hit it. Maybe he did. But I don't think that David maybe even thought that he was in position to convince everybody else that that's exactly what they need to do. At least not in that time. He certainly wasn't in the position to influence people to repent and to get down and have a broken heart before God. Not yet. Not at the time of the writing, I don't think. I think he wanted it. I think when we look back at the verse, 
and I like this. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways after restoration. Then I will teach. And I don't think David's going to, you know, the way that verse reads, then I'll teach you. Guys, I, I couldn't teach you. I guess I could teach you not to do the things that I did. That would be easy enough. Just don't do these things. Don't do what I did. But to teach the ways of God, it has to include God. God has to actually do the teaching to all of us. God has to be the one that teaches to all of us. I think, I think in a way, this is more of a, then I will be an example. I will be an example of your mercy and other people can learn that. When David says, I will teach you, I don't think David's going out for a scholarly position after this is all over. I honestly think, God, do this for your glory and then other people will acknowledge who and how you are. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Other people will learn. Transgressors will learn your ways, God, if you will do this thing in me. We can learn, and we do. David gets his request. Otherwise, we're not gathered here today thinking about these things and doing these things and talking about them. We're learning, and that's the whole point of me being up here, is to look at how God gets in here with David about all of this. Look at who and how God is able and capable and actually is the only source by which David can get any of his any of his anything going again. Reduced to a broken and contrite heart by which he is probably more than glad that God God will not reject. Again, I don't know if any of you guys have really blown it. Even if you haven't. Even if you just do little sins. You should know that all else be removed from you, God will not remove himself because he's faithful to himself. And so these sacrifices, back to 18. These sacrifices show up. David thinks that's the answer. I hope I'm transitioning well here, but let me just reiterate God and David, they pinpoint the thing that God wants through all of this up into verse 17. And then we zoom back out, and David kind of on his own here. 
looks back and, and almost in a way, almost in a, in a breakup letter style fashion, it kind of feels that way. It says to God, do God and do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices. It's almost like he's saying, God, that thing that we started together, that thing that you, you, you called me into and brought me forward to be a part of, you know, making me king and all that, and then we're gonna build a city and we're gonna build these walls and, and it's gonna be that representation of restoration of relationship with you that we lost and now we're having it back again. It's gonna be amazing, it's gonna be great. Yeah, that wonderful thing, yeah. It, it almost rings like, like David knows he's, in a way, not going to be a direct part of that as much as he was once invited into being. Because he says it to God. Maybe he's just praying on behalf of the people. Maybe he realizes that the sins, the consequences of his decisions doesn't affect just him, but it affects everybody there. And he speaks to God in a very kingly way. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And in a priestly way, then you will delight in right sacrifices. It's almost like David knows that he's maligned or breached both of those things in his decisions. And he asks God to do these things. He doesn't say anything about us doing them together puts it all on God. Do these things. But he was initially part of that. God drew him out. God chose him. The fact that David calls for bulls, I find interesting. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Bulls, from what I can gather, are the priestly sacrifice. They were offered on behalf of the priests. The priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. But this is like the ultimate sacrifice. This is, this is all, the, uh, all the conditions that the priests um, needed in order to do their job and that they probably screwed up along the way. Therefore, we need to offer these sacrifices. We need to admit we sin, We fell short and this is gonna cost us. It's gonna cost us big greatly, bulls. Because when we think of bulls of the time, we think about their economic worth. We think about their sustenance worth and how as livestock, they were, they were probably prized for carrying on uh, lineages and, and, and health and herds. So you, when you sacrifice a bull, it's kind of like giving up the workhorse in your company, whatever, whatever is the heartbeat of your company, the most powerful machinery or transportation or tools. You're gonna give those up. It's gonna cost you to give that up. And without that, you're not gonna have the same influx of, of wealth or prosperity or, or peace of mind or any of those things. 
It's a sacrifice, and I think it's large and it's ultimate. And I think that's just David saying, hey, may only the best and greatest and perfect sacrifices be yours. Henceforth, God, you deserve it. You're worthy. But I think we can take some of the things that we've been taught over the time that we've been here at Calvary Wallingford and we can see um, the representation of what, what the message, message is, knowing that our Lord Jesus is our sacrifice, that he is the king priest, that it is for kingdom and for holy relationship with the Heavenly Father that he died. In the, in the walls of our heart, in the walls of the, the place where he's taken residence in us, where he's made a way for us to have a restored relationship with God. The return to Eden, it's all there in this scripture. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, build up the surrounding environment of the place where we are reunited to dwell with our creator. Surround us in your provision and protection. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. God's not delighting in our ability to smoke bulls in our heart. God is delighting in the work that his son Jesus did on our behalf. God is, in del is delighting in the mercy and the opportunity to show himself to us because that was gone. That was removed and interrupted and interfered and, and blurred and maligned when sin entered. God is delighting in the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of his son his son went out and did the thing that he needed him to do and he came back and said dad I did it and the father is so pleased and he's so pleased to see us coming trailing behind God coming behind Jesus it's good to see you again to have that restoration to have that bridge rebuilt and remade and surrounded and protected in his holy city. Friends, brothers, sisters, I don't care if you've blown it. I don't care what names you have to call your sin by 
to the point that it would be a barrier between yourself and, and ourselves as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now we care and we should care for each other when we are in sin or struggling with sin or actively engaging in sin. I don't care that you are because if you're honest, not that you should be, but you should be aware that that is always going to be the possibility until a new heart is given to us in Christ. I don't care if you've, you've blown it as bad as David or not so much because I know that God, regardless of the descriptor of my sin, has still done his work and shown me that And even though the, the gravity of it was really, 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 really bad, it's not more than the gravity of, of his love for me and his ability to provide what I needed and still continually need in order to get out from underneath it, to get away from, to grow away from the consequences, to to outlive the fallout and the ripple effect of my really bad decisions and to be put into a place where I can, I can worship him and I can live out other activities and see other fruits and other consequences from other decisions that are inspired by him, that are uh, propelled by the gifts and the abilities that he's given me. Just be realistic, you people. You have a sin. And I, I think this is the point that I would care, is, is that if you didn't do anything about it, if you didn't realize that God is merciful and how foolish it would be to sidestep that mercy in continual pursuit something that has the potential to destroy you. God has spared David total destruction, but he allowed him to inherit a whole bunch of it. And he will do that out of faithfulness to himself. He will let you experience almost like a, it's almost like a chemotherapy with sin. He will let you die from it to the point that it almost kills you. I promise you, if you let it rain, if you let it sit in you, if you don't seek him to purge you from it, to cleanse you, And he's made known in this portion of scripture how accessible he is for any nuance of the details of it. He is intimately concerned with it. 
And he's not afraid of it because of what he's done is, is above adequate. It is merciful towards us in engaging it with him. Doesn't, don't care what it is. What he has for, for us in his son, the work on the cross, the expensive price of his blood shed, more than enough to cover the cost of whatever it is you've done. Big or small. Life-altering blowout, David style. Or maybe an indiscretion. Don't, don't let that good worship service, don't let that realization of who God is and that opportunity to have that indwelling with him in the heart of hearts and this few things that maybe you heard me say about the secret heart, don't let that just, don't let that ring and fade and think, uh, I'll get to it. Please don't, please don't. Please bow your head with me in prayer. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing in this communion. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this passage of scripture. I thank you for all of the thoughts and all of the words and all the pencil lead and all the erasers, smudge or whatever it is that happens. Lord, all of this. I thank you that despite all of my words and ramblings and, and desires to pinpoint who you are and how we are and what you've done is not dependent on my ability to do so, but is, Lord, everything we need to hear and know and do is inspired from your Holy Spirit, from your Holy Throne, you will instruct us, you will speak to us, you know every person's heart in here, nothing escapes you, no detail. I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad that you're the one with all the power. I'm so glad to just let you determine your will for my life. really is the easier, softer way. Lord, your hurts towards us are good hurts. You're faithful are your wounds towards us if we got to feel it. You're faithful to David. The things you, you may need to remove from us because they were ill-gotten gain or or they're just not time to be exercising those things, whether it be our gifts or our talents or abilities. Lord, if you just need to reduce us to a gratitude that you will not devalue our brokenness, so be it. Glorify your name, Jesus. Praise you for your sacrifice.